0: What we're going to do now is um, we're going to draw on your experience of how your chaplaincy is going, yeah. and then break into groups of four, yeah, and and discuss it but maybe if some brave and foolish person could give us an example of one of, and maybe you could also include an ethical dilemma that just left you feeling like, I just didn't know the uh, an appropriate way to handle that. But not just ethical dilemmas. Uh, any Anything that happened in your chaplaincy that felt like, hmm, surely there was a better way to deal with that. Or, you know, that, that feeling of dissatisfaction when you have, when you feel like I was searching for something and didn't arrive there, you know? <coughs> and then take that. Uh, does anyone have an example? Or have you all reached a level of perfection where you can just manage anything?
1: <laughs> like the way Melissa talked about her, the patient who asked her if she was saved, and she, she gave this description of what she did, which was not so great. So that was a learning experience. So any, any big challenges you've had? in
2: Not positive if it was a. I guess it was a challenge. Um, so 11 o'clock at night, I was called up to a uh, emergency in one of the patients' rooms, and I talked to the nurse when I first got up there, and she said that this particular patient is having some type of heart event. We've got doctors working on him, but he was just diagnosed with. Um, that he should go on hospice, which means he's got six months to live and he should go home and get home hospice. But the doctors haven't talked to him yet on it. So, even, so he's in the hospital. He doesn't know he's going to go on hospice. He might have an assumption that might be it, but no one's actually talked to him about going hospice. And then he had a heart event. Mm. And so she wanted me to be with him when the doctors were talking to him. So I went into the room. And we had an ICU doctor, and it's a, this is a training hospital, so they're relatively young doctors. And this ICU doctor was explaining to him that he believed he should go down to the ICU unit, and there's painful procedures, but they can get him stabilized um, after they perform these painful procedures. So one of them probably might have been intubated, or I'm not sure exactly what these painful procedures are. And then there was this other calm doctor who was saying, or you could stay up here and we'll give you some medicine to help relieve your pain. And, of course, this person just had a heart event, so he's sort of confused. And so I watched these doctors Mm. sort of argue above this poor patient, um, asking him what he should do, Um, the patient decided to go down to the ICU department and, you know, go through these painful procedures. Um, so it was just an interesting event that I watched. Um, there could be positive outcomes on either case um, and maybe negative outcomes on either case, too. So there's not a right or a wrong decision. It was just, like, that's where ethics come involved is those gray areas, you know, what's the best thing to do for this patient. Hmm. And um, I was just
0: the witness. Okay. Now that sounds like a juicy one to discuss. You know? You know, and the way to discuss it is, well, what questions would you have? Is there any other information you'd like to know about the situation? Like when you were telling it, I, it wasn't clear to me whether the patient had was clear about his own prognosis. Correct.
2: Not only was the patient not clear about his own diagnosis, he did not know it, but he also had a do not resuscitate um, order. And, and so, but he was aware, he was conscious enough to make his own decisions. So, I do believe that do not resuscitate only comes into effect when you're no longer conscious to make your own decisions.
3: Yes.
1: Go ahead. One way, maybe, to have it it, uh, a little bit more pertinent for chaplaincy would be if those two doctors said, We have to go, we'll be back in half an hour, tell tell us, tell the patients, you know, tell us in half an hour what. We should what what you'd like. And so they leave, but the patient is left with the chaplain. And so the person turns to mm-hmm. the chaplain and says, you know, what do I do? What should I do? Or what's going on here? Yeah. So the chaplain then has been because you you you, were, you you weren't given a role. But it could be that the you know, what I, the scenario I said just suddenly you have a role in the middle of it and you know more than the patient knows now about the patient's health, but you're being Now the patient has to make a decision and they turn to the chaplain for support. And what would you do?
0: And then there's another kind of question Well, in that kind of situation is it appropriate to just sit there or would being proactive be appropriate? And then if it is if you were going to be proactive then what would you do? So one thing we could do is we could either come up with some scenarios as a group or you could split into groups and then find the scenario you'd like to discuss within your group.
1: Including choosing that one.
0: It, it's nice to be able to ask whoever had the experience, the first-hand experience of it, to be able to ask them more questions. Because you know? <coughs> often it, when you're when you're hearing it from for the first time, then you think, yes, but did he have family members? You know, or um, other things that might impact this the situation or how you would relate to it, or. You know?
4: Here's an idea. Um, that's one scenario. Yes. If we, if there's a few more people that have scenarios,
0: that would do it. Then, too.
4: then we could create groups around each scenario.
0: We could, yeah.
4: This is a suggestion.
0: Well, let's see if that happens. Um, yeah. Anyone else?
4: I have one. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, great. <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh, so should I tell everybody now? Please. Yeah. Oh, okay. So.
0: I went to visit the, the brief
4: <laughs> I went to visit my patient um, two weeks ago, and um, ahead of time, her health care advocate called me to tell me what was up, and that she had had a really bad weekend and uh, was like very combative and um, you know uh, with with the caregivers and and uh and calling all her friends all her all her people like she was like making multiple phone calls and um she was just very uh what's that word she was very agitated <clears throat> so i guess her healthcare advocate wanted to prepare me you know for what i might find but anyway when i got there um she was she was pretty calm but then um and i you know and i inquired how she was doing and all that, but then she did bring the weekend up, um, you know, and I I didn't, I didn't say I heard from her advocate, but anyway, she brought it up and um, started to tell me, like, how mean the healthcare workers are, um, how they don't respect old people, you know, so she she had her litany of complaints, Mm -hmm. and then she said, I think God and the Buddha have forgotten about me. Mm-hmm. You know, have have abandoned me. Yeah. And um anyway, I was kind of like a deer in the headlights a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean I said some things to her, but I, I felt like mm. yeah, I wasn't really connecting with her where she needed to be connected, you know, where I needed to to be for her. Okay.
0: Great. Okay. Yeah.
1: Did you have one too?
5: I was uh, leading a class uh, with with fifteen attendants, I think, downtown San Jose mental health unit, level three and four guys. And one guy's standing, and one of my regulars was sitting. And I'm about five minutes into the meditation, and I'm hard of hearing, so I didn't recognize that guy standing was making a noise. That, and he was a, a pretty a badass, like he had really attitude. And the guy sitting, who's regular, but is kind of out there, gentle guy, um, went and kind of pantomimed the noise the guy was making. And the guy physically swatted him. Mm. People pulled out of the way. An alpha guy in front of me just looked at me, who I, I trusted, and just went. And so I proceeded. Uh, throughout, and then talked about ethics. You know, I, I finished the meditation. I said, "Well, stop." The guy who got swatted—it didn't bother him. Like it didn't. It wasn't like this shock or jolt or anything. It, it almost, God forbid, looked kind of helpful. I hate saying that, but that was the reality of it. It, it. it sort of woke him up or something. So I went into ethics, and they literally applauded me at the end of it. It was very strange. I've never been applauded before. But I walked out feeling like, did I just condone violence?
3: Mm
5: -hmm. The guards didn't see it. The guards were looking the other way. Mm -hmm. It was me alone with 15 guys. And I had really great answers on what would you do from the head chaplain, Dave Robinson, that was different from me. And what other people had to say over the years has become a really great inquiry for me on what would you do?
0: So there it is. Lovely. I think that's a great one too. Yes, Bob. One more more? Well, uh, Maybe two more. Oh. But please, Bob, go ahead.
6: This is also what would you do. So in the hospital... Um, in the early part of my still shadowing a chaplain, who he said, for, for this particular visit, why don't I take the lead? So I went in and uh, started the conversation with the patient, and she just wasn't at all interested in talking to either of us, the chaplain or myself, uh, down, depressed, depressed, uh, not very communicative. And then she said to me, all I want to do is I just want to get out of here and go home and, and see my cats. And I responded with, oh, you have cats at home? Are you an animal lover? And she said, well, yes, I love, I love animals and I love my cats. I said, well, so do I. I have a dog and my dog's my kid. you want to tell me about your cats? And she started to, in the conversation, just light up, you could almost see her heart open, and even her physical nature, she started to sit up a little bit as she spoke about her cats, and then spoke about her job, which was at the Marin Humane Society, and she's devoted her life to animals. Anyway, this went on and on, and I kept asking her questions about her work. She'd get more and more happy, excited, really passionate about speaking about the animals, Conversation went on for probably fifteen to twenty minutes, and then when we went out into the hallway, the chaplain and I, and I was getting the feedback. I received the feedback that I probably should have cut that conversation a little bit shorter uh, because it really wasn't a spiritual care conversation. Um, it was more of a visit, a a, a friendly kind of a visit, mm-hmm. which was good. But that's not really what we do. We're, we're to have spiritual care conversations.
3: Mm.
6: And that, I've, I've shared this with many, many people, and, and I spoke to the chaplain more about it. My approach was being with someone who was depressed and not in a very good place and found a little opening in her heart and explored that and I didn't really focus the conversation on spirituality or religion or pursuing what her religion was. Um, but it was an opening of the heart. And for me, as a volunteer chaplain, isn't that part of what I want to do?
0: Mm. Great. That's the question. So maybe you can discuss that with your small group and then, you know, is, is that what you wanted to do? Is, is that in itself spiritual care or is that a segue into something else or or you know I think there's a cluster of interesting questions and perspectives you could bring to it okay
1: maybe if we have four is enough
0: you if think four is enough otherwise
1: yeah. a, the, the numbers would be too small the groups okay the, so, so uh, I, should we do this four mm-hmm. to yeah. make it efficient the four are One, two, two, three, four. four. One, two, three, four. One, two,
3: three, four. One, two. Are we going to the group of our
1: interests, though? Well, I thought we could do that. But just that's more complicated to get right numbers. We're just
3: going to count off. I just thought
1: we'd just do it efficient. But if you you want to, uh, we can can just self-choose if you want but,
3: but, uh,
1: what? No, I don't think
3: I suggested that. I just
1: said if there were four scenarios. Or yes. Yeah. yeah, I just thought, because of our time, I thought we'd just make sure that's yeah, more even. Sure. And chaplains never get to choose what they... Is that okay? So
3: where
1: do we, where do we law off, off of the numbers?
0: I think we're two, two with Anita. Two,
1: three, four... One, and then cater is two. Okay. So the leaders, lift your fingers, appropriate number of fingers. Three. Uh, three and four, your four fingers.
0: Four, four. fingers. Four
1: and four. Yeah, so, so, the, so you say, keep your finger up. Everyone got a number, go to your leader. And the leader's responsibility is to take you someplace.
3: <laughs> if
0: each group could present... Um, which group would like to go first? Sorry, but before we get into this, I'm not feeling well. And oh. I'm
3: going to take Oh, so okay. We'll, I'm going to try to hang in there, but if I leave, I've
0: been very just iffy all day, so I just wanted to let you all know that. Okay, well, thanks for letting us know. Yeah. If, you, if you need
1: T- to take care of yourself, to do something like walk rather than sit. Right, you
3: yeah. Know, it feels better you can, you can
1: walk out, out right there, or you can walk in the hallway. Yeah. Or, the hearing system device even works outside. So you can go walk on the deck and get fresh air if that helps you.
5: Okay, thank you. Do
1: you want to go first, Bob? Sure. Okay.
2: I didn't prepare. We didn't prepare a PowerPoint presentation.
1: It's fine. That's good because it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be long. (laughs)
6: <laughs> so um I really ga- I gained some insights from our conversation so just a quick refresher this was the conversation um a chaplain volunteer visit with cats the woman spoke about her cats and it opened up her heart so a couple things that we discussed and and one is that different chaplains have different approaches and different ways that work for them. So there is something about finding our own voice and finding our own identity as a chaplain. Um, and as an example of that, I shared with the group and we spoke about, um, in my shadowing of two chaplains, one chaplain said to me, never ask a patient if they want to pray. Because if you're a volunteer chaplain or if you're a chaplain and you walk into some a patient's room, they're lying in, the, in a bed in a hospital and a chaplain walks in and says, would you like to pray? Of course you're going to say yes because they're a chaplain and you're lying in a hospital bed. The other chaplain said to me, never, never ask a patient if they'd like to pray. And if it comes up that they say I'd like to pray, would you like to pray with me? Well, then yes, I'll obviously say yes. But the, I say that because there were two chaplains that have gone through CPE both with very different points of view on prayer. So when it comes back to the cat story with this woman, what may have been not a spiritual conversation or religious conversation for one chaplain may have been the heart opening, may have been a spiritual or or religious opening for the other chaplain. But I think something that was discussed that I really take as a... a great suggestion was possibly the opening of the heart when she was speaking about her cats could have been a doorway into then speaking about you know her religious practice or spirituality. So the door was open to the conversation and there could have been an opportunity then to go deeper with uh, a religious conversation. And I also think... Had it not been a 15 or 20 minute visit where I only saw the person once, let's say if it was at Laguna Honda where I see the same people every Friday, the next week when I went to see her, that would have been great that our connection has already been made. We've built some trust with each other through that conversation. And then I could go in the next week or the next visit and have a a deeper conversation on spiritual practice. So a lesson for me is, which I've learned a lot in this volunteer experience at the hospital, is, is for me not to try to put everything in a box of right and wrong because that just constricts it too much. And to be open to the fact of that it could be more fluid and to be open to the possibilities of what could happen outside of the realm of right, what's right, what's wrong, and so on and so forth. So net net, um, with her heart opening the way that it was, that was her need at the time. And that was her opportunity to come out of her depressed, down-in-the-dumps state. And so that's fine. Maybe for somebody else it wouldn't have been.
0: Assessment of the situation right that this this was a um, healing process to be going through for her yeah for her so it, was, it, it wasn't just a casual yeah. and random conversation
6: it wasn't just a friendly conversation it was this was her yeah getting out of her doldrums
0: mm
3: mm-hmm. yeah Any other comments uh.
7: So Bob, you were shadowing someone, another chaplain. So that I think there's, to me, it sounds like. So you were override. You're like sort of. You had to kind of override his his advice a little bit, and 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 it sounds a little strange to me, I guess, from this seat because that's someone that you're shadowing, That's like basically teaching you how to how to mm-hmm. be a chaplain. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you, go, Like, wh- where is this? Uh, um, what do you, how do you view both your sense of how you, you related to that and then someone that is a potential teacher to you telling you how, like, like where is it that, you're, that, that you come to some conclusion that maybe, because to me at least, and you can correct me, it sounds like he has, he has kind of maybe a limited view of what happened. And of your experience from from, so, from what I'm hearing from you and I wonder how you feel about that
6: so the the chaplain that gave me the feedback that I probably should have ended the conversation a little bit faster because it was more of a, a friendly visit than a spiritual visit was actually in the room with me so I saw and observed and heard the conversation uh, and there, there are three chaplains that I have an opportunity to interact with at any given time and all three have very different approaches and styles. And so my lesson has been to be careful not to take what anyone will say, this is the way to be. And, and actually nobody has yet. They've given me suggestions as to this is a way to show up. This is a way to approach a patient, but they're all three very different. My lesson has been my, I have an opportunity to find my own voice. And to find my own way of being based on the excellent experience that all three of them have and to take from all three and then find out what works for me. So rather than having a mindset of uh, I like what that chaplain says and I don't like what that chaplain says, it's taking a little seed from each and letting all three seeds kind of churn in there until Bob's seed comes out.
8: So we, uh, we had Alan's situation with the patient who <clears throat> who had just had a, a heart event, which I guess we don't know the, the details of what happened to this patient, but Alan is, uh, has heard earlier in the day that the patient only has uh, six months to live and will be going to hospice. Uh, The patient doesn't know this. The doctors may not know it. Um, And the patient's nurse asks Ellen to come into the room to um, be a part of this discussion between, it sounds like there were three different young, enthusiastic doctors with differing opinions about what should happen to the patient, and that kind of hinged on, does the patient go to the ICU to go through uh, known painful procedures to, to be stabilized and have a good chance of making it through the night, or take pain medication and maybe not make it through the night? Was that accurate? They never said that
2: you might not make it
8: through the night. Okay. There's just sort of this implication of if you don't go to ICU... Uh, I, so i don't yeah so i don't know but the the dilemma was that the patient seemed to be confused uh, they had just had this heart event they had a, a DNR they had to do not resuscitate so we don't think that the patient was resuscitated um Just you know just just before Ellen came in, but we don't know for sure the patient is disoriented and ended up going to the i c u at the urging of this um this kind of enthusiastic young doctor who was kind of pushed to get their way, and so there was just this sense that maybe the the patient didn't well the patient may not have been able to make the decision for themselves anyway but um <clears throat> was kind of pushed into a decision that at least ended up causing them pain and then uh as as happens in a lot of hospital scenarios we don't know the end of the story so the story ends with the patient leaves the room to go to the i c u and so um so there's some there's some different um uh, aspects of this right so there's there's sort of a self care aspect from alan's perspective of this thing happened he was called in boy he wasn't able to make a thing happen that felt right am i representing this right um and it, it kind of lingered afterwards like wow well, this just, just did not feel that great um and then there's some questions around was there an an appropriate intervention would it have been appropriate to intervene at all cuz this is a semi this is a what was called a crash team so there was a sense of urgency and timeliness to the situation um, we talked intervention there, were you thinking of chaplain or by by the, chaplain, yeah. by the chaplain yeah yeah intervening in the conversation mm-hmm. and we talked about maybe um inviting the doctors to step out into the the hallway making sure that everyone had all the same information, especially about the patient's prognosis of, of um, six months of at-home hospice so that the doctors were at least... If the doctors were going to be pushy, at least they were being pushy based on full information. And then maybe maybe using that as an opportunity to suggest reframing the the conversation in a way that wasn't kind of playing a tug of war with the, with the patient. Um, at least I got the sense in the, in the telling that the, the doctors had, had personal stake in the conversation and and, and that was coming through in the conversation and that they might've happened op- had an opportunity to dial that back a little bit. So we talked about all these things and, you know, we concluded that, yeah, that was tough. And, um, <laughs> that was tough yeah
3: <clears throat> and, and
0: what, if- what if you had intervened what 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 would you imagine yourself saying or what did the group think would have been appropriate to say
2: uh, there was definitely a part of the group that wanted to intervene um it was a crash environment, so you had six to eight people in this room to make sure that this patient gets stabilized. You know, that's their job is to take care of the patient and the needs. For me to intervene, I couldn't go in there um, and say, excuse me, doctors, but have you considered this? Because the patient's right there lying in the bed. He does not know at that particular time that he's going to die in six months. Um, so I would have had to have for any intervention to occur, you'd have to remove um, these doctors from the place that they felt that they is where they belong, is with this patient to take care of them. And I don't think it would, I don't have the skill set to remove doctors from their primary job of stabilizing a patient. A, you know, uh, one
1: way to think about this is is not to consider the intervention, but the chaplain's job begins after a decision is made. And the chaplain just holds back and waits. And
3: mm-hmm.
1: Decision is made. Everyone leaves. You stay with the patient, and then you engage the patient, if you can, about what kind of... You're a chaplain, and what kind of spiritual or humanistic resources, existential resources do they have right. that might support them, given the decision.
2: And I did... Um So I went and made sure that I checked with the nurse that um, had asked that I'd be present in the room and made sure that she was okay, let her know the circumstances of what happened and what transpired. And I also let her know that I would bring it up to our team meeting the following morning and make sure that the ICU chaplain made a special effort to see this particular patient.
8: But the, in this scenario, the patient was wheeled out of the room immediately after the decision was what? made. The patient was immediately removed oh, from the room. Yeah. And then you
1: can't, yeah.
9: And this isn't... Well, it's related to this scenario, but a comment inspired by talking about this. Um, I think like in such a scenario, well, we talked about how there wasn't much information. Like we didn't have a lot of access to his other contacts that we could ask for information, and if he lacked capacity. Um, And aside from knowing that he's, did not resuscitate, it sounds like there weren't any other documents. So I feel like this is a great um, reminder that advanced care planning (laughs) is important. And so, you know, times when you might see patients where maybe there isn't a crisis and you're just getting to know them. But if you can ask questions like, you know, how do you define quality of life? And if you put that in your note and someone's looking through and they see that and they see, you know, does not want to be hooked up to machines, then in such a scenario that could come in handy. Like, you know, say if he really did lack capacity and couldn't weigh in, such a, you know little pearl in your note could actually guide a decision at some point. So I feel like we can't underestimate the importance of the questions that we ask about like what do you value, what's important to you, what are your concerns and how do you define quality of life? Because it can you never know when it'll come in handy too. Clinically.
1: The little contact I had with Melissa at Kaiser, I got the impression she always walks around the hospital with the blank advanced directive form. <clears throat> which is uh, ready at any moment to mm-hmm. pass it on to someone.
10: <clears throat> which begs the question that if, if it's a person of your faith, if it's a Buddhist, and they ask you in turn, what would you <coughs> what would you advise as a Buddhist chaplain that I do that would be best, that would be a good death? Would you have any resources
1: to no, I'm sorry, but I didn't hear... Or you have to use the mic. Yeah. Um, so I was saying the flip end of what you were saying, Stephanie, is that what if a patient when you asked a patient um, you know what what is quality of life for you and they were a Buddhist, and then they asked you, as a Buddhist chaplain, what would you advise what medications or machines would you advise avoiding um, in order for the 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 death to be Compatible with my religious beliefs, and I was asking if there are any resources that um, anybody knew, so that I could give an intelligent answer. A chaplain would never. Would a chaplain
3: ever answer something like
1: that? I mean, speaking for myself, I'd be very reluctant to answer that question. Even at IMC, I would try to engage them and their questions of them, and try to draw them out and find help. Then find a way. Um, I could give a, a Buddhist answer of a certain kind, and I have some a few times, but it 's not you know i 'd really reluctant to to impose that on such an important topic, especially if i if I was a hospital chaplain i didn 't even know the people
0: the, the The state of mind with which they were asking it would be important to me and and if there if there was enough um, Consciousness and capacity to cons- literally consider, you know, then I might think of certain questions. Well, here's some questions you could ask yourself, you know, like, do you have an idea of what a, a good Buddhist death is? Uh, um, do you know what an, do you have an idea of you know, what considerations come into play when you relate to that? I, I, I think offering uh, exploratory questions can be helpful. And, and implicit in that is uh, um, th- there's a certain amount of self-determination. You know, there there's no... It sort of says something of my notion of Buddhist practice, is that there isn't an orthodoxy that says, "Well, this is the right way to do it." You no. Know? And where well, this comes in a lot, and, and I have had to deal with this firsthand, where people would be considering suicide, and then saying, "Is within Buddhism is that okay?" So that's. A delicate question, and then what's the belief structure of the person is is, is uh, how do they consider this and and what 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 are they saying when they want to do it? I mean, are they trying to end suffering or are they trying to fight a way relate to suffering and things like that like yeah. Any other thoughts on this one?
11: I had something about Anita's question. I would be compelled to ask them what kinds of things they're comfortable with and not comfortable with. Like, not tell them what's Buddhist, but ask them. Because I feel like sometimes when people ask what's right and what's wrong they might have something in their mind that Mm. they're worried about that they want to get some validation so especially when it comes to end-of-life care people often don't really know like they'll say i want to do not resuscitate and i can't count how many times i've asked somebody you know what does that mean to you and it means something totally different for different people so people have like misconceptions and anxiety around certain medical practices, and that might just ask them if there's something they're worried about it might be helpful.
3: Mm. Yeah.
0: Okay.
4: Go on. <laughs> um, our group um it was a It was a good discussion um, Some of the things that surfaced was um, really taking seriously the individual's uh concerns about being disrespected and um, and listening offering you know very um, attentive listening uh that they need to be and, and saying you know I hear you or i uh, that must have been hard for you or, you know, just validating their experience. Because um, that was part of what she was really agitated about. Um, and uh, and then the other thing that we we all came up with was that uh, Buddhism, as we perceive it, or as we experience it, it isn't... Um, uh, uh, Faith, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, that looks to a supernatural, um, you know, deity. Um, so Buddha, and she was saying Buddha is abandoning me, God is abandoning me. That um, we were like, well, the Buddha's inside of you, you know. Um, but we were like struggling with how would we say that in a way that would be helpful and not, um, yeah, and not not um, you know yeah so um, uh, I thought of this after we met I thought what about turning it around for a question like well how do you understand Buddha or what does Buddha mean to you um, and I realized gosh I haven't done that I haven't asked her that you know because she does bring this up quite a bit actually um, about being abandoned by the Buddha um, but that, um, you know, there's this real strong feeling that or mindset that she wants this to go away, you know, like her, her situation. She wants it to go away and she wants a miracle, you know. So it's like, how do you work with somebody in that mind state, in that mindset? Because um, I don't want to give them false hope. Um, so we were talking about like how to meet them where they are um in 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 the actual experience that they're having right there. Um and actually I thought Cater explained it really well and I'm wondering if you'd be interested in in talking about it.
10: Um So maybe th- well, this is something I do a lot, but this made me think in particular of a particular um, a client I have who's a, who's uh, it's a different situation, but they're they're dying, um, stage four pancreatic cancer and no more treatments, and they really worked aggressively to not die. They did aggressive treatment, and didn't want to die. Um, You know, they're my age. They're 50, early 50. Yeah, I think they just turned 50. So um, it's like, how do you kind of turn the... Find a little bit of receptivity, like turn the table just a little bit to where there can be a conversation about something that's really uncomfortable and they don't want to talk about. And so... um, I think what I said was something like, it's it's possible to be at ease even in body and mind even when the body falters. Just to kind of present a possibility. Because I felt there was a little bit of receptivity. And then they were like, well, what does that mean? Do this, that, that, you know. And I said, well we don't need to do that right now, but just to open to this possibility that it's just possible to be at ease in body and mind even when the body falters. And then a little later on, I was working with them around relaxation and they began to relax. And I just said, well, what are you, what are you feeling now? What are you noticing? And then they could notice the relaxation. They could describe the relaxation. Um, and so it's like, oh, that... <laughs> That's that. So rather than forgiveness or letting go being a project that we have to work at, it's just this. It's what's already happening right now, and you're you're feeling it right now. Um, so I'm not sure if that's making sense to you, but it's like finding this little kind of where is there just a little tiny opening that we can just shift, even just you know a fraction so that there can be a receptivity to some new possibility. And then rather than kind of going on, oh, this is how we do this, this is how we do this, actually creating that environment for that visceral experience, for that embodiment of that new possibility, and then drawing attention to that new possibility when it actually happens, so that they have that visceral experience of that new possibility. They know it in their own body, mind complex. Um, And so once they've tasted it, then they can, it, it can grow. There can be more of that. So they, it's not me giving it to them, right? It's not me telling them what to do. It's that they actually viscerally experience that new possibility. And then that lays a foundation for going in that direction.
4: Yeah, I found that Really helpful, um, and because this this patient is Buddhist, um, I Do you know what kind of Buddhist? oh yeah, Tibetan, and um, I don't know which lineage or, but she has a, a a Rinpoche that she was studying with before she you know is in assisted living. He visits her occasionally. Um, but she really, she really resonates with the Medicine Buddha practice. So once I found that out many months ago, um, and Susan gave me a text um, that that we read together, and then we chant the Medicine Buddha mantra. Um, that always tends to shift her energy. Hmm. So that's one of the things I'll do is if I feel like I don't know what to offer here in in what's happening, you know. I'll say, uh, you know, would you? I don't have a lot of time, and that's always the issue, too. It's like, I have a limited amount of time. Would you like to practice? Um, you know, and, and we'll practice together. Almost every time she says yes, you know, um, but I'd be open if she said no. Um, but, um,
3: um, hmm.
4: Oh, and then the other th- suggestion that was made, which I thought was a good one, is the th- one of the things that she gets really upset about, where she said she feels like they don't disrespect—they disrespect, disrespect her—is because she has to wake up so early. She's in assisted living, and um, they wake her up at six to get dressed and you know go to the, go have breakfast and take her meds and all that. And she's not a morning person, so the, uh, Anita suggested like where else if, if she if that's non-negotiable, like the the facility won't. Budge on that. They, yeah, you know, the healthcare advocates try to work with them on that, and they won't budge on that. It's like where else can she have agency? Because she's so, um, you know, she went from being an able-bodied, independent person in her own apartment to now she's partially paralyzed and living in assisted living. So she's lost so much agency, and autonomy. It's like where can she have autonomy? And um, You know, maybe as her chaplain, I can help to advocate for her a little bit or help her just um, think out loud about that, you know, where she might have agency. Um, Yeah, I don't know if, if anybody in my group thinks of anything else.
0: Or anyone else have any comments or questions?
9: Right. Mm, don't know if this is helpful, but because um, I used to do some caregiving for elderly people, including people who were on hospice. But since the the issue of abandonment has come up multiple times, whether you've explored that,
3: yeah,
9: yeah, whether that might be coming from some maybe somebody else in her history and there's unresolved feelings there.
4: Thank you. There definitely is. Yeah. So, you know, I, I remind myself, I'm not her therapist. I'm there to provide spiritual support. So it's always like finding that right balance. Um, I'm not a trained therapist anyway, but, um, what would provide spiritual nourishment and, uh, And what I noticed too is like her, her mind really has a tape loop of negativity like we all do, but you know, hers is really, really amped up. So, and how much that doesn't, it it just seems to really drag her down. So that's, that's why the practice, you know, doing the medicine Buddha practice seems to interrupt it. Um, And uh, we talked about, maybe I could talk a little bit about how I have that too. And uh, you know, it's kind of like a hamster wheel. If If I, if I, tell her, you know, a little bit about be a little um, self-disclosing about it maybe and and talk about like what helps me Um, maybe that's something that could be a benefit or she might be open to yeah
3: thank you
0: you. okay
5: so the uh, initially, I elaborated on the story a little bit with some of the um, the the uh, the dynamic that I taught afterwards. What when, when I had the, I had copies of the grip pledge, and I had the guys read them out loud. I don't think I actually even mentioned that, but that's what the specifics were on ethical behavior, and they applauded me, and then I walked out of the room and just went. Did I condone violence? Um, the, uh, um what I did immediately, since there was an interim where there was no main chaplain at downtown San Jose Jail, I was working with uh, David Robinson, uh, who's a, a chaplain. He's been the chaplain at Elmwood since uh, 1985 and has only turned a guy in once. And so I emailed him and said, I, I would like to uh, um, talk to you about something, and I'd rather not email it so I called him up and we talked about it and he told me what he would have done which is something that had never occurred to me and he would have quietly packed his stuff and knocked and told the CEOs that it's not working tonight and leave without saying a word thus instilling the recognition of his boundaries and I really liked that and, uh, and I thought that for the longest time you know, I wasn't, you know, it's it's an ethical dilemma. It's, it's not, to me, I, I recognize the shades of gray in the whole dynamic because I could tell that it was a, a good session afterwards. It was rich. But still, nonetheless, I mean, there's no, you know, you cross somebody's physical boundaries with an act like that. That's violence. There's no black and white to that. I mean, that is clear. Anyways, one time I was waiting downtown, and this is what I divulged to my group before um, I began, like these two pieces that are key to the elements to the story. Uh, I, I, there was a chaplain there, that, a Christian lady who teaches art, and I really like her. And sometimes we have to wait a long time for clearance, and I told her the whole story and then told her what David told me, the head chaplain, and she said, Oh, not at all. You handled it beautifully they would have missed the whole lesson if you had done that you know it's all about the teaching um which had always made me recognize had since then since hearing that make make me recognize you know just the richness of um the uh the 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 non-duality of the question what what, what an individual would do in this situation both for right answers and they're opposed to each other so uh And Johanna brought up the point that if it was on camera and and the altercation, like if they got in a fight afterwards, it would have been documented that I let it go. Like there could have been a fight due to that. And and then it would have been like, hey, yeah, he hit me in meditation, meditation. And they could have had the records of the camera and, you know, I would have never been able to teach again. Um, Which brought up the recognition that it was just so many causes and conditions and variables to the situation, you know, like one, the guy that was swatted, he didn't have much short-term memory, and he wasn't offended. He apologized profusely for causing the altercation the next week. And it just is a matter of timing, you know so much was it? It's just It humbles me. What I'm left with is, is a lot of humility and recognizing that one different key element and, and it could have been an entirely different story. Um,
0: David, I didn't understand. Which, which one of them apologized? The, the guy who did the, the hitting or was, the guy who was making the noise?
5: The guy who was swatted.
0: Apologized?
5: Yeah, to me the next week.
3: And
5: who complained? Nobody complained. What happened was I, I had a regular that had been with me for quite some time who was irritated by noise, a brand new guy. Yeah. Yeah, made, and the brand new guy swatted yes. my regular. My regularly uh, apologized to me like really heartfully. Uh, really took me by surprise. Yeah. No consideration that he was offended.
0: You know. And and what about the other members of your small group here? Did they have any comments or questions yeah. for you? Yeah,
5: yeah, that's what um, A- A- Amy. Ask me what knowing what I know now, what would what would what I, what, what I have done different. Mm. Which which really brought up the shades of gray of the whole dynamic, you know, like like if if, if the scenario played out the same indeed, I think I, I would have played it out the same. I really do. Mm-hmm. But it also like, you know, don't get cocky, don't get it's not that simple. It's just not, it's like I really feel, and then um, um, Johanna, we brought up, we talked about ethics a lot, whether or not it was you know, a breach in ethics
3: mm-hmm.
5: um, to condone violence, and, and it's just really made it clear to me that the line was crossed, a line was crossed. But then the consequences of the structural violence I would have brought down um, to the folks incarcerated there, at so many levels it would mm-hmm. be argued that that would have been like you know tenfold relative to consequences of a physical striking that didn't lead to violence do you follow mm-hmm. yes yeah yeah um so wow you know it's um, really a rich scenario dylan brought up uh, you know like uh, asking somebody to leave once and just until they can when, when they're ready to, to rejoin the group uh, in, 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 in the context of a mm-hmm. prison where there are thirteen people and somebody making a noise when they 're ready to come back, you can you know, which is I really like that
0: so I have a comment and a question for you okay in my experience in working in prisons and jails, um, as a facilitator, it, it was significant to uphold. A, a certain safety in the group and and that the group members were looking to me to see like when something would come up, they'd look at me and say okay let's see how you deal with this you know C- can you like keep it together uh, and um, and so given that consideration. That that you're the upholder of, um, in such a situation, you, you you have a an expectation. Maybe one could even say an obligation to uh, uphold um, the safety, the trust, and in a way, the authority to do that. Um, from that perspective, what might you have done to demonstrate that you were upholding the standards of the shared commitment?
5: Could you repeat what you just said? I had my.
0: The From very the, last sentence. For, what, what could you have done to demonstrate that you were upholding the standards of the shared commitments of the group in, in that setting?
5: Exactly what I did because it came to me like, uh, not, we don't have time, but there was a, a big rift in a group I was with previously in Santa Cruz, and, and, and it went across racial divisions. I didn't see it coming, and people were hurt, their feelings were hurt, and and that's when I came into my place of power and how I negotiate my place of authority, and what came to me was that this is like a family dynamic, I love these people. And it's not fair to some people, blah, 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 you know, if this happens. So I'm very comfortable with my authority now because I consider them my brothers. And what I did was go into ethical behavior, and they all read aloud one of the precepts. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the first thing that happened was that Alpha guy that I really liked across from me, just we locked eyes, and he was highly intelligent. And I just kind of it felt like, um, you know, things happen fast. And it was like kind of, it's like a rodeo, it's like a bronco pole. Like,
3: whoa,
5: how do I stay on? And he looked at me, and and I looked at him like, whoa. And right when the guy jumped back, and he just went like that. And it wasn't denying me anything, but it was like, I was asking him, like, what do you think? And he got, you know, like, do nothing was my intuition uh, in terms of, like, calling uh, the guards or Mm -hmm. something, I mean, in that consequence. So I brought it to ethical behavior. And um, so it's interesting, Paul, because I unhesitatingly think I did the right thing in the context of Mm. the love of the group and the protection of what I could do. But it's still left with that, you know. Yeah. It was still a hit. I mean, isn't that how it goes every time, like the minimization, minimalizing, you know, of a, of a physical act, you know, so.
8: Mm-hmm. I just wanted to clarify this. Um, going through the, the ethical standards, that's not, that wasn't part of the, the program, so you, you interrupted the normal flow
5: to interject this. Is that correct? No, not exactly. I, I do a 15-20 minute meditation and then we talk about Buddhist principles which often integrate with ethics, and then I close with the metta. Right.
8: But then this thing you did with the precepts, right? Was that, a re, was that a clearly a reaction to the hitting? <laughs> oh,
5: yeah.
8: Okay. Yeah. So you didn't just let things go
5: on? Normal. No. No, it was a response. I went into the precepts as a response. I mean, I had copies of uh um the the grip pledge which is essentially uh, the precepts i mean is it, the precepts are re- encompassed within it and i had copies so i handed out copies to all you know 13 guys and, and we read because it's really good when they read um just sort of as a grounding mm-hmm. thing so yeah yeah so i think i did you know i, I uh but you know it still didn't feel black and white to me because there's a part of me That would roll over for alpha men, you know, from my past, from my youth, Mm -hmm. from my conditioning, and and you know, there's that nudge. When and I left the room, I just went. So, Mm. yeah. Okay. But thank you. I really appreciate. I'm so grateful to be able to process this, and I really appreciate the question, Paul, because it it made me clear that that was my intention. You know, like it's protecting family. You know, like protecting the integrity of the group was, was was paramount. If he was hurt or offended, it all would have played out different for me, because you know one of my brothers was hurt or offended.
0: And I, I think what Phil was saying was that you, you you did respond. It wasn't like you did nothing. You you actually said without connecting them directly and. And articulating the connection, you, you responded, if, if, if I understood correctly, you responded by reading the ethical principles that you had agreed to behave with in that situation.
5: Okay, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I misunderstood a little bit, I think. Yeah. Like, I guess what threw me was when you said I wouldn't have brought it up otherwise. And, and I might have, you know. But, yeah. but that was the only way to go once that happened, was, was to go into ethics.
3: Yeah.
5: yeah. It's what it felt like to me. Yeah.
8: I'm super curious what
5: you would have done if a man had been affected.
0: I am too. <laughs> 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 Very uh, good. <laughs> I mean, there's
10: so many things.
5: Dave Robinson suggested that when the guy, and I didn't, you know, the guy was unpleasant, the guy who hit him. Yeah. And I really love this one guy. And uh, the guy would, like, listen to me, just go, uh, I'm sorry, Dave, I can't remember anything you say, but I love you. you <laughs> stuck around for years. The other guy was just sullen and badass. Dave Robinson wanted me to, uh, like, you know, and if he comes back, don't let him in the room. And I was terrified of that. I really was. And I mm. never knew how I would handle that because he never mm. came back. Mm. You know, so who knows? That's, but I definitely is food for thought. <laughs> okay. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah. Do you want to say anything, or shall we try to switch gears? We have.
1: I think we should switch gears.
0: Okay. So thank you for all of that. And and, and of course, the the underlying notion is that, however things turn out for us, there's something to learn, you know, and, and and sometimes it's that notion of, well, there was a gap there, or it wasn't quite resolved, or something. Can that be a trigger for us to think, oh? helpful to reflect on this maybe it would be helpful to talk to someone else about it you know because the response I'm having is indicating that okay
1: so um, loving kindness is the parami And part of the discussion this morning was about sangha care and pastoral care in the community. Uh, We were going to have time for questions at the end, and we have 20 minutes for that. But I think it's better to spend this closing period of time doing pastoral care for ourselves in a very simple, demonstrate a very simple way of doing it, of ending, of of kind of coming together in a nice way and and, uh, perhaps infuse it with a nicer... It's nice enough here, but a different kind of way of kind of closing the day, and that is for us to um, clear the room, put it back into how it's supposed to be, and then I'm going to get, uh, and then I would, what I propose to do is to get the the Metta Sutta, Mm -hmm. enough copies for everyone, and then we read it, standing in a uh, being in a circle. So that's my proposal, and that means we apologize for not having time for the questions and answers we said we were going to do this morning, the follow-up, but we're you know running out of time. So, what? Mm-hmm. I would do the Zen version if I had it here, but I don't have it here. I mean, but Paul has probably memorized it, so right. <laughs> he could, you have it recorded. So,
3: oh, we could
1: hold the yes, but then we don't have our voices oh, together. Our voice. And in terms of a community process here and a community coming together, to bring our voices together, it makes a huge difference. So the, so the version I can find is it will be good enough. <laughs>
2: <laughs> do
1: we have time to clean, Or do we do that Let's do it afterwards. I think I think let's do this and then be finished maybe a little early and then some people can stay and help with the cleaning. So let's clear this room while I get the... 17 copies.